It's real interesting, I think, that humans, if you look at what's going on during development, right? right? So you have this very fast period of development the first three or four years, right? And then you, you still get bigger, but you have this, it slows down as you go through this extended childhood. What is it about this period that seems to be needed for human development and developing our mental capabilities? Welcome to season four of Purposeful Lab, a Maja Center podcast. I'm Katherine Hadro with my co-host, Dr. Dan Keebler. And Dan, not only are you my co-host today, you'll also be our expert guest as we kick off this season. I'm going to play two roles yes. today. <laughs> Multiple hats, but it's perfect that we have you because today as we're kicking off this season, which will be focused on consciousness, we're starting today to look at the development of homo sapiens and really the development of the brain. Yeah. So, you know, this uh, season, we want to look at consciousness, the mind and brain and free will and these these questions about how um, do you um, understand, you know, the human abilities, right? Our ability to reason and so forth. And how is that related to the brain? What makes us different from other organisms? So we're going to look at that, you know, from a evolutionary perspective today, evolutionary psychology, look at during development of humans, how, how is our um, you know, childhood development, how does that affect, you know, our, our mind and our brain? And then what does that mean to, to sort of be a, a human person? And uh, we'll look at that from a philosophical perspective as well. So, um, yeah. you know, we're going to start here in the the, the science and, and sort of work our, our way through these bigger questions. And just as again, today we'll be talking about the development of the brain of Homo sapiens, just to remind our listeners and viewers about your credentials, Dan. I mean, you are the professor of biology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, vice president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. You've written a book on evolution, and you have a new one coming out next year with Word on Buyer Press as well. That's right. I have a book on uh, sort of the intersection between uh, Catholicism and the science of evolution. How do we see um, a synergy or how do we uh, look at both of these as uh, a both and? So let's just dig right in um, and kick off this episode. We've discussed evolution before. We had a whole you know, season on right, evolution yeah. and human evolution. So as we're going to be discussing the brain and consciousness, let's focus on specifically the changes we see in the brain in humans compared to other primates. So what is it about the human brain that is different, you know, from other primates or hominins? Yeah. So you remember um, the hominid is a, a fossil form that's more similar to modern humans than chimps. So that is that a common ancestor about 7 million years ago, there was a common ancestor and one branch led to modern humans. Another branch led to modern chimps, and the hominins are the fossils that are more similar to modern humans. Um, and so what do we see in the hominid fossil record, right? And what do we see when we compare the human brain to brains of other primates like chimps, our um, um, the closest living uh, relatives? So we do see an a, a increase in size in the brain compared to chimps, you know, maybe three times as large, you know, um, mm. you know, three to four times as large. So you see this increase in size. Um, you see that going on during the um, a hominid lineage as well. But um, it, it's not um, just size because, say, Neanderthals, for example, had a larger brain size yeah. uh, per body uh, ratio that, that, than, we than, than we do. So okay. it's not just uh, size, it seems. It's also the organization of the brain. How is the brain structured, right? Um, and so the human brain certainly has uh, got slightly different structure than you know, the temporal lobes seem to be more globular and so forth. But there's another thing that that besides the structure, and that is sort of the development of the brain. And one of the things that seems to set humans apart from other hominids, mm -hmm. and certainly from other 
um, living um, uh, great apes is that the human brain develops a lot longer. It takes longer to get to full maturation of the human brain, you know, so um, where, where chimps um, get there in 10, 12 years, humans, it takes longer to get there, say 18 years to, and maybe even longer to get yeah. that full brain development. Um, and uh, so that 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 seems to be one of the things that seems to set humans apart. Because isn't it the human brain isn't fully developed until twenty four? That's what I hear yeah, all the time in yeah. popular culture. Right, and and it, it depends how you define it. Because the brain is always changing throughout life, and we'll talk about that yeah. this season about yeah. the neuroplasticity. Um, but in terms of sort of uh, the the full development, yeah, there's a lot of changes that occur through your late teens, early twenties that sort of solidify some of the developmental things that happen. So speaking of this, you know, prolonged development, how is it that we know that humans have this compared to other? Yeah. So with living um, great apes, we can we can tell, okay, well, how long does it take them to get to full maturity of their brain? How long does it take modern humans? And you can see there's a significant difference. When you look at the fossil record, it's a little more difficult, right? Mm. Because you don't get to see them develop. You just get to see a fossil. But by looking at the teeth in um, some of these fossils, you can get an idea um, of how old the fossil um, individual was. Oh, this based on the teeth growth pattern. This was a three-year-old or this was a four-year-old. And then looking at the arrangement of the teeth, you can tell how far they've gone in development. You think like, dude, have they lost their um, so deciduous or child teeth? And do they have their molars? Do they have their adult teeth? Right. right. If we look at a human jaw, we can say, oh, this person was probably around eight or nine years old and they're still developing because we know it takes this long to develop. Um, and so by looking at that, you can sort of get an idea of how long it, development takes in these other hominids. It's, it's not a precise science, but we have a good idea. And it seems that humans have a longer developmental time than um, um, most other hominids. Um, Do other species have, you know, speaking of teeth, baby teeth, or is that unique to humans in our prolonged development? Yeah, no, other hominid species do have that, you know, but what happens is they, they go through those phases quicker. So they, they, their adult teeth come in faster than, than they do mm-hmm. in humans because they have a sh- quicker development uh, process. So what are the consequences of this? Now, you know, we've talked, okay, we have this prolonged development, um, this prolonged period of brain development, of sexual maturity. What are the consequences of that? Yeah, it's real interesting, I think, um, that, that humans, if you look at what's going on during development, right? right? So you have this very fast period of development, the first three or four years, right? And then you, you still get bigger, but you have this, it slows down as you go through this extended childhood. And then you hit puberty and growth picks up again. But yeah. this extended childhood is something that's relatively unique to, to, to humans, right? Um, which is interesting. What is it about this period that seems to be needed for human development um, and developing our mental capabilities? Um, what age group is that, that, you know, when you're, you have that prolonged childhood? Yeah. So from age, say four up until, uh, you know, you hit puberty, maybe 12 and that range, you know, you get, um, you know, you're, you're growing, but you're not growing as rapidly as you did at the beginning mm-hmm. and then at, during puberty. Right. Um, and the, and, and so you don't, um, uh, have this, you, you have a change in growth. Yeah. And it's interesting because what happens during this period is when there's this extended period of imagination development and play. Mm-hmm. So if you look at kids from four to 12, they do a lot of, they're sort of learning how to have social interactions in a safe place. Like yeah. as they play, they learn how to understand what other people are thinking. They get to start to imagine what they want to be and they can you know think through scenarios, right? 
which is something that's uniquely human, sure. right? Um, because you, you, what, what you don't see, like apes don't sit there and think through, okay, if I do this tomorrow, maybe I won't do it today. They seem to be stuck in the present. Uh, where humans have this ability to time travel in our mind, right? You can right now, mm-hmm. Catherine, think, well, what am I going to do tomorrow? Um, or what am I going to say to you know my husband when I get right. home? Um, and then you think, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. And so you can play through scenarios so that you, you, you're not playing through them in real life, right? You do this, you know, you see children do make-believe, you know, where you right. play house, you, like you said, kind of work out different yeah, scenarios. They, they're starting to sharpen their understanding of the world and the yeah. way people will um, uh, sort of interact with them. And and one of the other things that, that happens during this time is there's a lot of active teaching going on, right? So other animals um, can learn. So they can learn just sort of by observing things. Okay. But what, what humans really do a lot is not only do we learn during that period, but we actually teach, right? So you actively are trying to talk to your child and teach them something. So it's not just, they're not, they certainly mimic you. <laughs> they, yeah. they mimic you just by, but you offer this active teaching that goes on yeah. during this extended uh, time period, which I think is, uh, um, you know, as we know from, you know, um, you know, different mental disorders that, that occur if you don't get proper teaching, proper guidance, you know, at the young age, you don't get normal development, right? So why, I, I never thought about how that is unique to humans, you know, this prolonged play and the ability to do that and prolonged development. Why? Why does this happen and what are the benefits of it? Yeah. Well, you, you think about like the, the human society is um, and, and what sort of sets us apart is this, these very complex social interactions that mm-hmm. you have with people in a relatively dense group of, of, uh, of people in your society. And you have to learn all of these intricate you know, social yeah. interactions and uh, try to understand what somebody else is thinking and anticipate what their concerns are, be empathetic and all of that. Um, and so that's not something you know that's hardwired necessarily in our brain. Our brain is set up to do that, but we have to learn because we have to learn how to understand other people. And so that's I think with childhood, that extended childhood period is learning how people interact and respond to you. When I do X, oh, they get really angry. So you learn, okay, now that's the proper social interaction. So we have this wonderful plasticity in development, yeah. right? Wonderful plasticity, but that means that we have to learn. <laughs> You know, properly. And if we don't, you know, we, we can go off the rails. But that allows us to adapt to all kinds of different societies. You look at you know, yeah. society is, is organized in all different ways and look at primitive societies and mm-hmm. how they organize themselves. And the human brain is able to adapt and to, to thrive in all these different environments. Would you say then for our brain development, we are dependent on other people? Do we need other people for our brain to develop properly from an evolution standpoint yeah w- w- without a doubt you know and there's a lot of studies what you know uh, that when you don't have proper mm-hmm. input from other people the brain doesn't develop properly right um and so we clearly are um, designed as a social species where right? we are meant to be in community with other people learning from other people and associating with other people um yeah that being said okay there are other species have social communities as well you know i'm even and, and have all of this. So I'm thinking of the organization of social settings like bees or ants or even lion packs. So what makes humans different 
from these other organizations that yeah. we see with other species. Yeah. So these these other, it's a great question because, yeah, they certainly have these intricate communities. Right. But the behaviors that you see within those are relatively circumscribed, right, in that um, bees um, in the community take on different roles and the very limited roles that they can take on, Queen right? Bee. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the workers and yeah. the drones and so forth. Um, it's more hardwired, right? They don't necessarily have to learn to adapt to this. It's more hardwired genetically. Um, and that's, you know, sort of true of these other type of communities. Whereas humans, uh, they have this plasticity to develop and uh, appropriately into all different types of communities, right? And you think about, you know, the different uh, ways in which courting and mating occur in different societies across the globe. Yeah. You know, the, we don't have this stereotypical courting mating ritual that like fruit flies might have, right? We have all kinds of things that are culturally learned. And so you learn how to adapt to this this this, this sophisticated culture. But had you been born in another culture, you would have been able to learn and adapt to that culture, right? Um, You're right. There's this fluidity, yeah. this, you know. And creativity in the sense of the way human cultures develop, right? So how is our brain equipped for that in particular? How is our brain equipped to have that kind of flexibility to fit in whatever culture someone is raised? Yeah, I think one of the things, you know, it, it, it's that neuroplasticity that that we have, but you know, all organisms, a lot of organisms have neuroplasticity as well. They can learn mm-hmm. and change over time. Um, but there's certain abilities, like cognitive abilities, it seems like that humans have that you don't see f- in, in a robust state in other organisms and okay. other, even our closely, most closely related primates. And one of the, uh, I think the most interesting ones is this, this theory of mind that humans have, right? Um, and the idea that I um, know that I have beliefs and I have preferences and I have a, a view of the world, but I also know you do too. Hmm. And you have a mind and other people have a mind. And not only that, but I want to learn from your mind. So other animals don't seem to, to have this, to rec- recognize, uh, the, they, they don't seem to recognize this as much. And they don't seem to want to learn from other minds. They don't think about thinking. thinking, Right. They don't think about thinking. They don't think about what other people are thinking. Think, oh, this person might have different beliefs, might have wisdom that I don't have. So one way to to illustrate this is is, uh, what's called like a a false belief test that you can do with with individuals. And you can do this with with young children. Um, And uh, what what they would do is they have a young uh, child watching and you put some cookies on the table, okay? Um, and they um, stay there. Then you get up and leave the room, right? And then when you leave the room, I take the cookies and put them behind me. So I hide them, right? Okay. Uh, now you come back into the room, right? If you have like a two-year-old, they'll say, where will Catherine look for the cookies? They say, well, oh, she's going to look behind Dan, right? But they, they, they don't associate that you didn't see that. So you have a different belief, right? But if you ask a four-year-old, a four or five-year-old, and they ask you, you say, well, she's not going to know where to look because they recognize you were gone, so your mind has different knowledge. I have a different belief. belief right? So they, they, the, and so they, they, they recognize that, um, uh, whereas it's not clear that um, you know, primates, other primates recognize that, that idea that different minds have different beliefs based on yeah. their knowledge, right? Um, but where, whereas you know, a two-year-old just assumes everybody knows the same thing that 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 they do right um you know why they uh yeah they, they, well i mean in newborns don't they think their mother is a part of them right it's right. like all part of development i guess to learn no i'm an individual you are different and isn't that why two-year-olds like to say no all the time because they're exercising their 
autonomy and their authority there. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of learning that goes on and it's amazing. You know, the amount of investment that you have to have in a child to get them developed properly is another reason, you know, we have to have such a complex social system. Uh, That being said, you know, you talked about wanting to know what's on someone else's mind. How do we do that as humans? How do I how do I get to read someone else's mind? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's really, you know, part of that is is, is hardwired into us that we mm-hmm. want to read other people's minds. Yeah. But then we are flexible in trying to understand that and figure out the best beliefs, you know. Yeah. Um, so we're drawn towards people's faces. We have a region in our brain that just is dedicated to recognizing faces because mm-hmm. faces are so important. Um, you know, there's a, um, a book that I, I read um, years ago, and when it did, it had uh, a series of pictures of just people's eyes, you mm-hmm. know, just um, you didn't see their nose, their mouth or their forehead, just their eyes. And it would give you an option of, of what emotion are they expressing? They give you four options, right? And you're supposed to run through these questions as fast as you can. And I'm not um, perceptive at all. So I was, mm-hmm. I'm going to do awful on this. So I went through them and I got like 70% of them right, that we have a really innate ability to pick wow. out emotions in people's eyes. And we're sort of drawn towards people's faces and eyes. And then we also have these, the whites of our eyes allow us to see where people are looking so we can see what they're interested in, what their intention is. And like, you know, we can tell, oh, my father's not looking at me. And that little young child tries to interact with the father who can tell that it's no longer and that, that gaze and pointing, you don't see that in the ape, other apes where they point or gaze and people will track, the other apes will track that. So it's just sort of unique, this sort of learning, wanting to engage with other people and understand what other people are thinking is, yeah. is, not, uh, is something that seems to be innate to humans. That, I never thought about that, how that's unique, that I, we desire when someone, if I'm talking, I want someone to make eye contact right, with yeah. me. We desire that connection. And actually, it's pretty hurtful. If someone's maybe kind of glancing over my shoulder, looking at someone else who's in the room, what role does language have in all of this? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, language is absolutely essential, right? To be able to share minds, to be able to understand what your mind is thinking, we have to have some way of sharing that information. And language is having these, these concepts that we associate with things that, that, that allow us to exchange minds. It's, it's interesting. You have all these things that might be uniquely human, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we have this theory of mind. Uh, we can mentally uh, time travel and think about what will happen tomorrow and reflect on what happened yesterday and what I should have done differently and language. They all seem to be interrelated. And that you can't really do one without the other, right? You, yeah. you, your language is necessary for understanding the mind and so forth. So it's almost like you have this whole suite of behaviors that, that humans have that allow them to do all types of amazing things that other apes and other hominids never seem to be able to do. That being said, looking at the evolution of the human brain, when and how did language evolve? And, you know, do other primates, you know, have primitive versions of language? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great and controversial question. You know, okay. obviously language doesn't uh, fossilize and and um, and uh, you know there was probably oral clearly oral language before there was written language. So, uh, but you know uh, there, there's a debate. But most people think that there was some type of change, structural change to the brain that gave us the ability um, to um, you know develop language, and that it happened rapidly and 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 quickly. There wasn't sort of this gradual sort of. Uh, mm. Uh, change. There was some something like that, um, that 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 something gave us the ability to think conceptually and yeah. recognize the self and other people. And all once that happened, that that then makes language possible, right? Um, now you do see, you know, um, that um, 
like if you train chimps, particularly if they're around humans a lot, they can pick up some language. They can understand, you know, um, certain words and certain orders of words, but they certainly don't develop like a syntax of language, like the rules of the verb and so forth. And they can never, this sort of recursive nested meaning of language, like, you know, Catherine went outside to see uh, uh, her friend who lives down the street, who she met when she was young. Like, you can follow that, yes. right? But they, you know, they, when you try to train apes, they have no ability really to follow. It's very much they're sort of stuck in a few symbols. So they have some, like, you know, language in quotes, uh-huh. right? They, they have ability to associate words with meaning. It's more like a complex associative learning. But it's not language that's creative that, that you and I have mm-hmm. that we share. So it does seem to be distinctly um, human, particularly amongst, uh, you know, who knows with other hominids, we don't have the ability to interact right. with them, but certainly it's distinctively human um, on our planet now. Yeah, because obviously, you know, animals, they can communicate, but that's different than language. Right. And it's that language that enables us to get to know someone else's mind. Yeah. And it also allows us to step out of, our current environment, right? That's one of the things that we're really good at. And I think it's important for us to be able to think about what's going to happen tomorrow yeah. um, and to, to plan and to rehearse how to do that so that we don't get tripped up when we do something tomorrow. We've, we've sort of figured out, okay, that might be a problem and to address the problem well before it happens, right? Um, yeah. And, and, and uh, whereas animal communication seems to be wrapped up in the, in the moment, Oh, there's a, a predator coming, or um, you know, it's a mating call. It's things that they want right now, or I need food, right? Um, and, and the language that you see when they train chimps seems to be more wrapped up in what's going on right now. They don't plan for tomorrow or think about they, the past, think contemplate about, the past. about yesterday. Yeah, exactly, and and that that's something that really seems to be uniquely human. This mental time travel, yeah, which saves us, you know, because we can't hardwire in our behavior because our behavior is so flexible. What we need is the the ability to think about it a lot and to reflect upon it so that we can hone our behavior to be more um, uh, sort of appropriate and more and to flourish. Change our behavior, right? To change our behavior based on the reactions that we get from people around us. Can you speak more? You mentioned about how humans, we can recognize that other humans have minds. Can you speak about more about what you mean and what are some more things that humans can do that are unique to other organisms? Yeah, yeah. So the, that ability to to recognize minds or to assume other people, yeah. other humans have minds and want to communicate about that is something that really seems to be um, sort of uniquely human, being self-aware of who I am and how I'm situated in the environment. There's some ability, I, I think, of, of certain chimps to be self-aware so they, they can see their reflection in the mirror and they can sort of different, they'll put a smear on them, like on their face, and they'll look at the mirror and they'll see the smear there and will immediately try to wipe it off. So they, they can sense, that, well, that's, that might be me. So there's some concept, of me, but they don't have a concept of themselves situated really, you know, in a society and um, in a sense of what did my actions today and how should I change my actions tomorrow the way humans do. Uh, and their behavior is, is much more limited in, in that sense. And how can what I, how does what I do affect others around me makes me think to can animals have empathy if they're not thinking about the other? 
right. as much too. But yeah, yeah, and I, I think they may have sort of primitive empathy and emotions where they have grief and expressions of grief and so forth, right? But there's, there's again, tend to be reactions to what's immediately going on in the environment rather than reflecting on things that they've done in the past and being sorry for those. That's something that's uniquely human, you know. So when do humans get to have these kind of abilities? Like, does this start when you're a newborn? Yeah. I mean, as a newborn, you don't have all of these. They're in potentiality and they start to develop over those first four years, you know, language starts to develop and, you know, you have these sort of windows where you're really, really good at learning language. and then. You get to our age and, you know, you can't uh, learn oh, no. language <laughs> nearly as well. Um, you know, you, you get to that um, uh, stage where you really want to learn and be, you know, you're, you're like sponges. Kids really just want to learn anything and, and want to be taught. But they learn best when they have a human person there teaching them, you know, interacting with because they really want that, that, that human interaction. I feel like it really underlines the importance of those first few years of human life. Right. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, there's, it's like a risk and a benefit of that, right? So this plasticity and this dependency upon other people, yeah. the risk is, and humans are, you know, you're taking a risk that you are need other people for you to flourish, right? And you need other people to, um, to uh, love you and care Vulnerable. for you to, 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 to flourish. That's the risk. The benefit is the potential to do all kinds of different behaviors wow. is huge. So you, the, the realm of things that humans can do, where they can live, the societies can be, it's just vast compared to any other organism, right? And nobody you know, does uh, the types of ways that humans make a living, for example. It blows away. We're, we're chimps and they, they, they sit in trees in the jungle and they're not out exploring and uh, developing, you know, uh, universities and right. symphonies. Creating and podcasts. And podcasts, right, right. And trying to communicate with other people and share ideas and so forth. What about, okay, so we've talked about, you know, humans unique from animals, but what about other hominins? You know, did Neanderthals, for example, have this ability? Yeah, the, the, that of, of all the hominins, those are the ones that um, probably uh, there's the most sort of evidence that maybe they had some of these abilities, right? Um, we've talked about um, um, them before in previous podcasts, but, uh, you know, they, they have... Uh, you know, some some evidence that maybe they had some burial practices, you know, that maybe they buried their dead, you know, exactly how you interpret that. You know, there's people that are on both sides of the fence uh, that maybe they had some understanding of the afterlife. Others, well, maybe this is just hygienic, right? And yeah. it has nothing to do with higher conceptual thought. They had some artwork and so forth. Um, but but it's not as complex and as deep as the artwork you see in like human cave art that was like from thirty five thousand years ago that was known to be done by humans. So um, you know it's it's one of the things about Neanderthals that it does seem that they did not have they 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 got to maturity faster than humans. Okay, uh, it was longer than probably other um, hominins, but they probably didn't have as long of a developmental period as humans. Although let's you know there's a lot of debate about that. Um, and if this long development is really the key, they would have missed that. Um, and uh, they also didn't live as in as high a density populations as as modern humans, right? And maybe it's because they didn't have as good of social interactions, so they they, they couldn't live. And but other people arguing that this might be more likely is that they were bigger, so they need more nutrients. So they. If you had too many people in one spot, they would deplete. starve, deplete the nutrients. So 
it, you know, it's it's an interesting question, but the, the, and, and it's not one I think that uh, you know we we can answer what Definitive. their theory of mind was. What did they did they uh, recognize other people's mind? Yeah. Did they have language and so forth? That being said, I mean, what do we know about how Neanderthals, you know, went extinct and could it be related to their social skills and their cognitive abilities? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it could have been, you know, it's clearly, you know, when humans, um, you know, um, go into uh, Europe, um, you know, about 45 to 50,000 years ago, they're going to encounter Neanderthals there. And there's just a lot of different theories of why Neanderthals went, went, went extinct. Maybe they brought disease, you know, uh, maybe they were just such a small population. They just sort of were assumed and inbred with humans and their geniuses got lost. Uh, maybe they were, um, you know, killed by, by humans who had maybe better, mm. you know, uh, uh, tighter social structures and higher numbers. They just, you know, outcompeted them. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's also possible that having these more robust social structures and that's in humans made them more resistant to changes in the environment where Neanderthals were more susceptible because they didn't have as robust a society, you know. So it's all speculative, you know, unfortunately, because we don't really, really know. That being said, okay, as a biologist, we're talking about the brain um, and how it's evolved and how complex it is, and it's fascinating. But do you think, again, especially from your perspective, do you think the brain, this physical organ, can explain all of human behavior? Yeah, no. the the The, the idea that that the brain affects human behavior is is incontroversial. We, we know, you know, that uh, damage to the brain affects people's behaviors. You know, take certain drugs that causes change in the brain and affects your behavior. So there's a clear link between um, not only uh, human behavior in the brain, but human cognition. Our perception of the world changes when our brain changes, right? Um, we don't have enough uh, sugar, you know, we get hypoglycemic, that changes our perception of the world. Yes, it does. <laughs> right? So um, that, that's true. But I don't think, um, it, it's clear to me that, that the brain can't explain all of human behavior, and particularly our sense of self, right? I have this sense of who I am and what it's like to be me. And you have a sense of mm -hmm. what it's like to be you. And we can share that because we can share, we have a common language, we can share your mind, and normally we can understand that. But I can never know what it is like to be Catherine. You can never know what it's like right. to be me because this is my inner subjective experience. And that can't be reduced down to the material, right? It can't be reduced to the brain, right? There's something about me that goes beyond the brain. Certainly the brain is associated with that. My brain stops working I'm not going to be able to experience what it's like to be me anymore, but it, it, it transcends that, and it's not a, it, it, it's not a physical thing. By my inner reality, I do know that I am and have this conscious experience mm -hmm. of the world around me, and I do know that my brain affects that, those yeah. two things. Um, so there's this material and immaterial reality to me right. and to, to, to other people, and I think that is sort of one of the truths that I think is central to what it is to be me and what it is to be a, a human. And I don't think you can ever reduce that down to, you know, just neurons firing in the brain. This organ can't explain everything when it comes to human behavior, which I think is why it's going to be important. We're going to be bringing, bringing in philosophers into this season to be examining the brain yeah, as well. Yeah, to ask them uh, about what does it mean to be a human person? Um, yeah. What is it, uh, the, the soul and the body, what does that mean, right? We'll bring in, um, you know, uh, developmental um, uh, psychologists, what it is that happens during development of humans. Look at people that have studied neuroimaging and what is mm. consciousness and what do we know about it from neuroimaging and what are the limits of neurobiology, for, for example. And then yeah. 
particularly how do you change your um, sort of how do you, how, how do um, you know, what you want to do change your brain? How, how how does your intentionality, your desire to to learn to change your brain, and then how does your brain change your mind? So this two way street, how do you how does this this happen? Because it's it's a very fascinating subject. There's probably more questions than there are answers here. Well, and to that very point, you mentioned the flexibility of the human brain. What are the advantages of that? But also, are there potential drawbacks? Yeah, I mean, the flexibility there of the the, the human brain is that we have a much greater range of behavior possibilities. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you know, like a fruit fly is going to be a fruit fly and it's going to bait in one way and so forth. Whereas humans have all kinds of ways they can go about living. Um, and uh, uh, so they have a lot of flexibility to adapt to all kinds of environments, make uh, uh, lots of different societies and organize themselves in different ways, take on different hunting, farming, you know, manufacturing, all these things that you see in human societies. Um, uh, but the But the drawback is our dependence. Right, so our dependence on other humans, and that is, you know, at the core, we are meant to be in relation yeah. with other people, you know. And I think, you know, God is re- is a relation, right? God is in, is a trinitarian relationship. We, as we reflect God, are meant to be in relationship not only with God but with other people. And that dependence there, I think, speaks to who we are and how we're made. That's what I, that's what I was going to ask you as we're starting to kind of wind down on this conversation. Again, as a Catholic biologist and looking at the brain and how it seems that community is just hardwired into us in a unique way, different from other species. What does that indicate about the way we were designed? Yeah, yeah. I think that it tells us that there is something beyond us, right? right? And, and uh, that we're meant for something beyond ourselves. And initially in human culture, we recognize, well, we need to be with other people. We, we look beyond. I want to know what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. I want to know what my mother is thinking, yeah. my father, my brother, right? I want to know what other people know. I want to learn from other people that, that, that I have to reach beyond myself to flourish. And then that points us that we have to reach beyond humans to God to fully flourish, right? Mm-hmm. That, that there's something beyond us, and that's what we're destined yeah. for. And I think our development demonstrates that on a small scale. Well, in our next episode, we'll bring on Dr. Pamela King, this developmental psychologist, and we'll just reiterate that point. And again, especially for childhood and adolescence, those critical years when it comes to the development of our brain. That's right. Is there anything else as we're, again, kicking off season four, anything else you just want to reiterate or emphasize about the development and evolution of the human brain? Yeah, I think, you know, the evolution of the human brain is interesting. You know, it shows us how we might have gotten to the structure of brain that we have. And gotten to the pendulum, but I don't think it's going to explain all of human behavior, right? There's certain aspects of human behavior that go beyond the the material, um, and I think there's good reason that there's even agnostics who argue that you know that, that that's the case that there's something about our mental capacity that can't be reduced down to physical neurons. Yeah, no, it it just sticks out to me how we as humans, in a unique way, desire to see and to be seen. Right. That that's yeah, really that's, critical. Exactly. For us. Yeah. Well, that is fascinating. And again, tease us up perfectly for the remainder of the season. But before I let you go, Dan, we have some questions for you for the Office Hours segment. Okay, so first Office Hours of season four, you know, I had a question about scientific advancements in death prevention. So it's fascinating when you look at over the past few decades, all these major advancements when it comes to health and technology. So in the 1950s, Ventilators were introduced along with the first mechanical hearts. In the 1960s, 
CPR was popularized and defibrillators were introduced. You know, now we have, um, when you look at the healthcare system, we have these implantable artificial hearts and advances of cooling down. You can cool down a person's body and brain after they've had cardiac arrest, you know, really to help save their life. It's right. fascinating, all these advances that we've made. Um, but there is not to mention debate now about death versus brain death and properly defining when death is. So that being said, with all these advancements of, of medicine, will it become more challenging for us to determine when death actually occurs or are we starting to play God here? Yeah, no, I, I don't think, you know, we're, we're, we're playing God when we're trying to help people live and flourish. And, and as long as we're not, um, you know, uh, sac uh, crossing ethical boundaries where we're, 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 we're um, damaging other people to help one, one person live and damage another person. But it does, you know, the question about when, when, does, when does death occur, you know, when is that irreversible line? Because you can have a flat-lined heart, a, lot, a lack of brain waves, and people have these near-death experiences, yeah. and then they come back, right? Um, and, and, and so as we have more and more technology, you know, um, you know, can you bring more people back after they flatline and so forth? So there, there is, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, a, a question of when, 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 it, when have they finally died, right? Cross that point. Cross that point. And there's a point that they do, that they're not going to be able to come back. But, you know, because of technology, that point may change, you know, uh, because of our ability to, to, to bring people back yeah. after five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, you know. So, But uh, there's going to be a limit, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know. We are not able to extend our lives indefinitely. And in fact, a lot of these that's been introduced are blessings, if it, you know, could help save save and bring people back uh, right. and let them finish out their their life in the way god in, intended and god intended us to develop these you know uh, technologies to help um uh keep people healthy and yeah. allow them to survive okay so another question for you so bishop robert Barron, many people are familiar with him and his work with word on fire ministry he was one of the u.s bishops who went to rome for the synod on synodality that happened back in october and he wrote about um, his experience there in a letter. Um, but he did take aim of one aspect of this Synod report that came out in October, and namely the suggestion that advances in our scientific understanding will require a rethinking of the church's sexual teaching. Again, I thought this was interesting because it hit on this theme of faith and science. Um, and without having to get into the weeds of the Synod in particular, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the point that Bishop Barron is making here. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a lot of, you know, maybe not just this issue, but yeah. the, the idea is as we advance science, we have to change the moral teachings of, say, the church, right? Mm -hmm. That 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 science um, will will dictate that we change the teachings of the, the faith and morals, right? Um, and uh, that, that, that concern is, you know, um, a, a valid one because some people argue we should. Well, but science shows this, therefore we can't believe in the resurrection or something like, you know, mm -hmm. or we can't believe in, you know, um, the permanence of marriage or, or, or whatnot, right? right. Uh, but um, I think um, John Henry Newman uh, um, in his writing talks about the development of doctrine, which is a better way to look at it. Science helps us better understand doctrine so that doctrine can develop become a richer understanding of it. It doesn't cause it to go away or to, to be diminish, but we, contrary we to it. it. But we see it in a different light, in a more expansive light, in a better way. So science can help us better understand, you know, what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God as we understand uh, humans, I would say, like 
evolving. Like that gives us, it doesn't change the fact that we are, we owe our existence to God, but it can change our, our, and develop our understanding of how we are made in the image and likeness of God. But yes. it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not like we take that teaching and throw it out and, and replace it, but science can help focus and develop a richness that, that, that might be there. And I think that's an important distinction. Uh, so we, we shouldn't be afraid of science, that science is, is, is there to um, truth doesn't contradict truth, and science is going to help us often because it, it allows us to learn more about God's creation, should help us to learn more about all of God and the, the teachings of the church. Seems it gives us a clearer lens. Right, exactly. It's like that we see truths uh, more clearly or yep. in a way that we didn't fully appreciate. Yeah. Well, thanks for answering all those questions and for tackling that as we kick off season four. I'm going to remind our listeners and viewers, you can submit questions as well for the office hour segment by emailing us at info at mongecenter.com or by leaving us a voicemail at 949-257-2436. We are just getting started with season four. So make sure to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform and go to mongecenter.com to see the latest with what we're up to at Purposeful Lab. That does it for this episode, but we'll see you next week.